Welcome back to Books for Men, a podcast to inspire more men to read and bring together men who do. So this week I'm doing another edition of From the Vault, and it features a conversation that I had with Tyler Cowan back in 2018. And although it was five years ago, I think it really holds up well and potentially is even more important today than it was back in 2018. Perhaps maybe some of the things that we talk about in the episode only deepen in terms of importance. So our conversation was centered around his book at the time, Stubborn Attachments, A Vision for Society of Free, Prosperous, and Responsible Individuals. But we cover a lot of topics and ones that are extremely important, both as individuals striving to live a prosperous, free life and as well as collectively as a society. I think that they go hand in hand, obviously. Now, you don't have to agree with everything that we talk about in the podcast, but I think that as we discuss in the actual conversation, being able to entertain ideas that you don't agree with is essential to living a free, prosperous life and probably essential for our society as a whole. So Tyler makes the case that you should probably be listening to and reading things you disagree with a lot more than you are reading or listening to things that you do agree with. And that happens pretty early on in the conversation. And we talk about a lot of different things, all of which, as I've already mentioned, have an extremely high level of importance still to this day and probably will forever. So just really briefly before we jump into the conversation, I did just want to mention why I'm sharing this conversation with you and why now. One, this is kind of a superficial reason. It was the most listened to episode on my previous podcast. It's not what it seems. So I thought that would be a fun thing to share with you. Why was it the most listened to? I don't know. You'll have to listen to it and find out. But secondly, Tyler is somebody who I still read, listen to, and follow on a regular basis. So both his blog, Marginal Revolution, as well as his podcast, Conversations with Tyler, I'm a regular consumer of both. And for good reason, because without any kind of hyperbole, he's just a brilliant, brilliant thinker. And even if you don't agree with the things that he thinks, he still just communicates in such a precise, practical manner and has such a vast amount of knowledge that spans over so many industries and subsets of life that it's really fascinating. And just he's somebody who I respect a lot. And that's why not only was it an honor to have the conversation with him on my previous show, but I figured it would be a great conversation to reshare with my new audience on Books for Men. And on that note, since there will not be any kind of ending or wrap up at the end of this conversation, I did just want to remind you, if you enjoy this conversation or this episode, please remember to share it with friends, family members, and other people that you think might like it. Word of mouth is everything when you're trying to spread awareness and with this podcast specifically, it's inspiring more men to read and bringing together men who do. And the book that we talk about in today's episode, Stubborn Attachments, is a short one. It's only 160 pages, but it's very, 
very impactful and may open your eyes to a completely different vision in a completely different worldview, much of which we'll discuss in this episode. Additionally, I want to remind you, if you're a regular listener, to please like, follow, rate, review, any of that good stuff on whatever podcast platform you listen to this on because it goes a long way in helping other people find the show. Lastly, like always, for more information, you could always visit booksformen.org where you can also sign up for the monthly newsletter, which is a wrap-up of all of the episodes complete with links, full book and author information, all the best quotes, and newsletter-only book recommendations. All right, so now that we've got that out of the way, without further ado, here is my conversation with Tyler Cowan from my previous podcast, It's Not What It Seems. It was originally published November 11th, 2018, but as I've already mentioned, I think it has really held up, and I think it's just as applicable today. With that said, I hope you enjoy it. Tyler Cowan, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Yeah, I'm, I'm really honored to have you on the podcast. I've been a big reader of your work over the last few years, both your books, your blog, Marginal Revolution. You're undoubtedly one of the great thinkers of modern times, but believe it or not, the thing that always amazes me more is that no matter what question gets asked to you, no matter the complexity I've heard get asked to you ever, you always end up answering with incredible precision. So I, I want to touch on that shortly, but... We're definitely going to chat about your brand new book, Stubborn Attachments, A Vision for a Society of Free, Prosperous, and Responsible Individuals, a book that's really about how we should be moving forward and perhaps why we can't be so stubbornly attached to the past, right? So it offers not only a unique vision, but a framework for decision-making. I'm really excited to share it with everyone. But as I mentioned, before we jump in, I have to ask you a couple of questions that have been stewing for a while. Maybe this is sure. maybe this first is a little rudimentary, but <laughs> going back to answering that questions with precision, is there anything that you do or have done in the past that helps you communicate so efficiently? Public intellectuals should think of themselves more like athletes that they need to train every day, that they need to practice, that they should write every day for hours, that they should devote their spare time to try and improve some part of their routine. So I think of myself as having really since about age 14, and now I'm 56, just every day worked on trying to explain things better, to understand more deeply, uh, to read more quickly, whatever it is I might need to do or give a better talk. And if you just work on those things every single day, and I mean Christmas, I mean your birthday, I mean Sunday, at some pace you'll get better. And one of the themes of my book is the idea of compounding returns. But compounding returns apply also to your knowledge and to your life. That's interesting. So I've heard you talk about the value of compound learning. And I'm a huge supporter in this. I often call it continuous learning. And, you know, from your perspective, what does that provide you that otherwise wouldn't be provided if you didn't compound learn over time? When you compound returns, your knowledge builds upon your knowledge or economic growth builds upon the economic growth of the past. It's like having money in a savings account that is paying to you 10% a year rather than 1% a year. It's nice in any one year, But after, say, 60 years of investing, it's a huge, huge difference. So if you're thinking about your own self-improvement, try to be on tracks where you're getting better virtually every day, but also your own interest is being maintained. So your enthusiasm, your passion, they're working for you, not against you. And always quit a little early when there's still something you want to do. And that means next day you'll be hungry to get back to it. 
<laughs> I love that. That's a that's a great action. So always always leave them wanting more, right? Leave yourself wanting more. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. I like that. Another thing that I've heard you talk about quite a bit and I've actually heard you say this is the key wisdom of our time, knowing how and when to defer. So my question, do you still believe that? If yes, why? And of course, if not, then why not? Of course, you know, most people know more than you do about many things and figuring out uh, whom you should ask, to whom you should listen, how to judge the quality of their responses. I sometimes talk with my foodie friends and they're like out looking for a restaurant and they'll argue about food and what dish is better than which other dish. And I say, look, this is ultimately sociology. The real knowledge is figuring out who is the right person to ask and then judging whether or not they gave you a reliable answer. So do you have a criteria on who you ask for food recommendations? Depends on the country I'm in. If I'm in, say, East Asia, if you ask men, you get a very different answer than if you ask women, say. And dining is often sexually segregated, say, in a country like South Korea. So it depends what you're looking for. But in many countries... Asking men in the age bracket, say 40 to 55, they can be the best group to ask because they're most likely to eat out often. Uh, okay, okay. I guess that makes sense. So do you have a favorite place where you're from that you dine at more often than others? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I write an online dine guide. I live in Northern Virginia. I just stayed at my favorite Thai restaurant called Elephant Jumps. And in the world, I love to eat in Mexico, Singapore, Tokyo, uh, Sicily, many, many other places. So what's the best cuisine that someone's never tried that they should try? Probably Sicilian if you haven't had it. That to me is the best food in Europe, Sicily in Italy. But it's different from Italian food. It's more medieval. It's sweeter. It has more fragrancy. It's more like Arabic cuisines in some ways. That's something really quite different if you don't know it. Yeah, so I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to note that. So we'll shift gears a little bit. And there's, there's a looming problem that I think you articulate well in, in one of your previous books, The Complacent Class. And it's really talking about our matching culture, right? And our, the culture of matching that we've developed. Perhaps we can correlate it to food, right? To cuisine, because there's certainly things, technology and what, whatnot, that, that seem to match us with the right food and, and whatnot. But it's something that I'm, I'm definitely writing about right now. And I'm actually writing about it in a similar context in, in my next book. And the fact that it, it prevents us from engaging with people that are not like us, reading stuff that we don't agree with, prevents us from deferring something that we just hit on. And this, for me, is a huge problem. So do you think that this matching culture promotes another concept that I've heard you talk about called devalue and dismissing, which is something that I feel is a really, really big issue that we're experiencing today. And feel free to add more context or catch up the listener on either concept. Sure. But do you think one promotes the other? Uh, let me take those in order. In terms of matching culture, I think there's too much internet dining right now. So a place becomes well-known on the internet, it gets good Yelp reviews, wherever, and then everyone flocks there. And this has led to a world where there's a cycle where good places burn out very quickly, and they're also hard to get into when they're at their peak. If this was a slower cycle of acceptance and praise, I think most people, including the restaurants, would be better off. You ask about devalue and dismiss. I feel we do this so much on the internet. So you follow people on Twitter and you see their worst sides. You see some of their less tolerant claims or some of their mistakes. And it's very easy, especially if you disagree with them, to play what I call devalue and dismiss. Like, oh, person X said that. I can't listen to him, can't listen to her. And then you dismiss them. But it's actually the people who often offend you the most, where you have the highest marginal value of learning, because maybe you've learned less from them before, or their sources or inspirations are foreign to you. 
So I often say to my students, look for the people who offend you who are smart and try to learn more from them. And if they're still offending you, that's kind of a sign you're on the right track. So do you have anything that you do to benchmark whether you're going to tune out to something at all? Well, if someone just doesn't have content, but I think you need to realize that people who please you in every way, they probably are wonderful, but you're, you've already been learning from them for quite a while. So precisely the people who seem to you to be making big mistakes, don't always take that as a reason you know, to put them out of your feed or defriend them on Facebook. It can be a mixed or even positive signal. It means somehow the world or you already has been neglecting them. That was another thing that I've, I've definitely heard you talk about in the past, which, which I found was, I found it, it's very hard for me to do this. I've heard you say something to the tune. That's of, why it's valuable. Exactly. <laughs> so I've, I've, I've heard you say something to the tune that you've, you enjoy reading books that you don't agree with more than ones you do agree with. Uh, that's correct. Because the ones I agree with, again, they're fine books, but I tend to know a higher proportion of what's in them. Yeah. So how do you get through it though? I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like it's so, I mean, I read, I read, I think I read a great deal. I mean, you probably, you definitely read more than I do, but I mean, I read probably a book a week, 50, 60 books a year. I don't know how many books I could read that ones I just eminently disagree with. Well, it should be most of them, right? So, you know, look for markers of quality, such as good reviews from some people, but not others. If a book has won National Book Award, Peeler Surprise, a lot of those are very good. In economics, we have Nobel laureates. And when marker of quality and offensiveness come together, I would just say cultivate detachment. The returns to detachment are underrated because it helps you learn from this great diversity of sources. So explain that, detachment. Go a little bit deeper into that for me. Well, I have a book in my pile right now. It's by Eric Foner. It's on the Underground Railroad in 19th century America. Now, Eric Foner was a Marxist. So possibly he'll say things in this book which offend me. Maybe not, but it's certainly plausible that he will. I just need to keep on going. Eric Foner was extremely well informed. His books are excellent. They're full of information. They do have perspectives I don't agree with. I want to read more Eric Foners, basically. I was going to ask you, is there a book that you have read recently that has deeply offended you, but you've learned a lot from? Well, my Twitter feed, I would say half of the tweets in it on any given day offend me. <laughs> People who have exaggerated opinions about politics in either direction, that offends me. But somehow I sample the feed as a whole and with enough detachment to get through it. And I feel I learn a lot. You know, a lot of books are not that offensive. If you read fiction, probably that's not offensive. Current affairs books are more likely to offend you. The best books to read are history books overall. They're most likely to have a lot of information, even when you disagree or if they're wrong. I probably think, too, that if you're reading a lot of history, there's probably a lot of difference in social norms from time to time. So there's probably yes. things that they talk about in, in these books that would be deeply offensive to certain people if they're in today's day and age. I was just reading about James Polk how during the Mexican-American War, he just took revenue from Mexico and used it to keep on funding the war because Congress wouldn't give him the money he wanted. <laughs> now, that's outrageous, but like no one knows that anymore. It, it turned out not to matter. So there's a lot of things going on today. Maybe they're outrageous, but by reading about the past, you get a better perspective. I like that. That's interesting. You'd made, you'd made mention that anyone who is over-exaggerated on the left or the right, I think that's one of the true values in your recent book, Stubborn Attachments, where I think you're really challenging both sides of the fence, right? I think you're really challenging both the left and the right. And you have some really strong articulations in the book, some strong points. 
And I really enjoy the fact that it challenges both sides personally. So let's take some time and go through them. I think there's an overarching principle that you use to guide us in stubborn attachments. And it's almost like you've really tried to simplify a really, really complex thing and use sustainable economic growth as our North Star. Right. And then wealth and then wealth plus as our metric to define it. So if we're going to have a North Star, this is how we define it. So I think giving a good overview, a good solid overview as what they are and how did you come to this conclusion and and why did you come to this conclusion would be a great starting point to, to talk about the book. I would first summarize the book by talking about who I offend and how. Uh, that's what readers, in a sense, ought to really want to know. I offend the left wing by saying economic growth is typically more important than redistributing wealth, and growth will do a better job of redistribution. But I offend the right by saying having a sustainable environment is all important as well, and that these should be two pieces of the same puzzle. Uh, the key messages of the book are pro-future future matters much more than we think. We shouldn't be myopic. We should value the heroic and big thinking. And the way to really get somewhere is to have an economy that gives you compound returns and grows at a higher rate over time. You know, I was in China 30 years ago, and it was just bicycles and, you know, smelly pig carcasses and a lot of poverty. And then I was there a few months ago, and it's gleaming skyscrapers and a pretty large middle class. And that's economic growth. America has done the same. Even a small difference in growth rates over time, it compounds. It leads to a big difference in final outcomes. That's like the short elevator speech of my book. Yeah, so not to detract off the book, but you had mentioned why you would offend the left, why you would offend the right. Do you think we're in an environment now? Do you think we're creating an environment now where where really smart people are now afraid to actually voice their opinions on these really important topics because of being outcasted or the way that technology has moved and and the amount of noise that exists in society today, do you think we're creating this environment unknowingly? I see voluntary self-censorship more and more. I see it on social media. I see it in academia. I see it uh, with CEOs and I see it in journalism. But I think we know we're doing it. We're just, you know, walking closer to the cliff and everyone's a bit afraid to deviate from that. Yeah, but why do you think that is? I mean, I I know why it is, actually. I guess my question isn't why do you think it is, because it's pretty clear that the people that are are voicing, you know, there's such hard lines on what is appropriate and what isn't that it becomes very hard to create content or voice your opinion in that manner. But I guess my question is, how do we move forward from that? I think some of the problem is that social media increase the pressures for conformity, because if you slip up, Or maybe you say something that's right, but others don't like it. It can go viral and be used against you. I think people stepping forward and saying what they think and having courage, this idea of courage, is probably the best way around it. And I think we're seeing people do that. In fact, often those people are too offensive. But I see the norm shifting, kind of viral social media storms against people that might have crushed them two years ago. Uh, They're surviving them these days. So I think the norm is actually right now improving. I think one of the big things that I know I think about on a pretty regular basis, I actually just published an article on this topic, and it's the quantity versus quality, right? And I think no matter what you're doing, if you're doing it in quality, kind of like to what you were saying before in regards to the book that you were just reading. 
Eric Foner or the one on Paul? Eric Foner, right? So it's quality. And so as long as you're producing quality content, it's the content, not that it doesn't matter as much. I think the problem that we've run into is that we think we can go deep by using 280 characters. We think we can go deep by creating bad content and poor quality content. And what that creates is this noisy environment where people that should be speaking out who can create quality don't because of all this other bad quality, right? But just mass amounts of quantity that are coming out in in short videos, short texts, short, all this short form content that is just not thought through and the ideas don't sit long enough. I liken it to this idea, the business idea of a race to the bottom, right? So we're in- Send me your piece, by the way. I'd like to read it. Yeah, definitely. I will. So it, it, it's a race to the bottom, right? Where information, that's where we're at. The same thing in business where one company undercuts the next until nobody wins. We're in that same environment with information right now. And I, I think it's a really, really big problem. So not to go off on a tangent, but I think tying a bow on what you were saying is as long as we're creating quality content, that should triumph over whether it's offensive or not offensive because you know that there's been thought put into it. You know the reason why the person is producing what they're producing. If we have enough leaders who speak up with quality content, I strongly believe that side of things will win. I really, really like that. So sorry for for dominating the the, the conversation there for a moment. No, it's important. (laughs) It really leads into an essential question that we've kind of been going around the bush about here a little bit. And it's how much do we value the future and how much do we value the present? And I think this is something that you touch on in the book because it's all about moving towards the future, right? So I don't, I've done enough talking. Why don't you talk about how should we decipher between what's more important, the future and the present? Well, many of our most important decisions concern the more distant future. And a lot of it is simply, are we leaving high quality institutions to future generations But some of it is more concrete. Are we saving enough? Are we investing enough for the future? Are we building enough infrastructure? Are we making our environment sustainable? And in all of those areas, especially in the United States, we tend to be too myopic. But the costs of those bad decisions when they arrive, they will be just as real as suffering in the present day. So I'm arguing in the book that people should be less myopic and look toward the more distant future and take this longer time perspective. And uh, that's the preachy part of the book, basically, telling people myopia is one of the major problems we face, but we can get over it by a sheer act of will. In the book, I believe you describe it through discounting, right? You're defining it. And I think that's always a really important thing. And that's another thing with producing quality content, right? It's if we're giving something a North Star, we have to be able to define it with something, right? And so I think you do a good job with, maybe you can explain the discounting, how discounting works to evaluate bigger picture decisions in terms of importance to the future. Economists use these numbers, which as you said, they call discount rates. And a typical discount rate may, might be 5 7 10%. And it just means if something happens a year later, it's worth 5 7 or 10% less. And then if it happens, you know, decades later, it's really worth much, much less because you're discounting it, say that 7% for every year. When individual businesses do this, it might make financial sense for the business, But when we as a society do it with entire lives and all of what we're trying to build, that's when it's a major mistake that we basically start consuming our own social capital. We eat into our norms and we're not leaving a good enough future for our descendants. 
So what's something more actionable that we could do in, in the near future that would enable us to look into the distant future on a policy level? Of the wealthy nations, the United States has about the lowest savings rate. Our performance on infrastructure is highly variable, but often a little pathetic. If you just look at, say, the subway system in New York, you want to open that new Second Avenue line. Well, they started planning that in 1972, and it just opened, you know, about a year ago. That's crazy for our most important, what has been our most populous city. People don't care very much about climate change. We should take more serious action there. We should spend more money subsidizing basic science, research, and development. Just as individuals, we should be bolder, more ambitious, less complacent. So those would be some of the concrete implications of what I'm saying. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's something that you've been on for a while now with great stagnation and then both and then again with the complacent class, which is, you know, kind of this, this idea of loss of dynamism, right, where we're, we are complacent. Have you moved off that at all? Or is that something that you're still you still think we're we're not being as dynamic as we should be, so to speak? <laughs> I still think, you know, if you go back to the 1920s or 30s, American productivity growth measures at being around 3% a year. Lately, it's measuring as being at around 1% a year, a third of what it used to be. Yet we have so many more scientists, universities, PhDs, nonprofits, philanthropists, and we're doing one third the productivity. Now, surely something is wrong with that picture. That's my basic message. I want to issue a wake-up call about what is wrong with that picture. So one of the other big, not to keep moving backwards, but it just reminds me of something that you talked about in the complacent class in regards to matching culture is that we have this situation where everybody, even on a socioeconomic level, is being matched with each other, not just technology, but from the aspect from a socioeconomic standpoint, people are matching with each other. So the investment banker isn't marrying the girl next door anymore. And the girl next door isn't marrying the investment banker. She's marrying the boy next door. And so it creates this effect that where people aren't moving around as much, right? And so it also plays into the detraction in our investment in transportation and infrastructure and all that. So I don't know. I think this is all intertwined with each other. If you were going to do something tomorrow that where would you make major investments today? I think the cultural dimension comes first. People first need to realize there's an actual problem. America has become quite complacent. One of the nicer aspects of the Trump presidency is that it has woken people up that something is wrong. You don't have to agree with Trump about many or most things, or maybe not even anything, but you can no longer just sit back in your chair and say, well, everything's fine. All is developing smoothly. You know, we can stay on this trajectory forever. No matter what you think of Trump, you now realize your previous assumptions about the world were wrong. There's something healthy about this. We're moving cross-country across state lines at 50% less than the rate we used to move. Social mobility is way down compared to, say, the middle of the 20th century. Large numbers of males are in situations with their education, their skills, where they're just not going to have very good lives. And uh, America is losing its global leadership. If I'm hearing you correctly, the best next action isn't in any form of investment, it's culturally. Culturally. Now, I think our government is making a lot of big mistakes. I would change those things. But you can't just wave a magic wand. Government responds to voters and the culture. And people need to have a clearer sense of what is wrong and why we are less bold and less innovative uh, than we think we are. Like the tech sector is great, but it's given people this illusion that everything America does is innovative. But you look at most parts of the economy, you know, say flying airplanes, it's barely changed in 50 years. 
Yeah, the same thing with the train system. Oh, they're worse in many ways. You know, you ride Amtrak, Washington to New York or Connecticut to New York. In some ways, that was a better experience 40, 50 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. What do you think some of the big major pitfalls are then right now for a prosperous future? I mean, if, if we're kind of talking about where we are currently, but what are some things that we just can't avoid moving forward? Well, I think for the United States, our main pitfall is to continue to tell ourselves either, A, everything is fine, or there's two versions of that. One is like, well, everything would be fine if we just got rid of Trump. Or the other version is, well, everything would be fine if we could just like defeat the liberals or the left or whatever. But they're all variants of the same disease, namely that we're close to a track where everything is fine. And uh, we are deeply in debt in terms of governmental debt unfunded state pension liabilities, personal debt, household debt, corporate debt. And there's not actually any wonderful plan for paying that back. And as I said, we have a very low savings rate and we are investing less in science in some important ways. Progress in science seems to be slowing down. Not acknowledging those truths is the biggest mistake we could make. Okay. So there's two directions that I want to go with this because I think it leads perfectly into something that you talk about in the book embracing radical uncertainty. And I think neither side is willing to do that. And maybe as an overview, what is radical uncertainty? But more importantly, how should that be applied to our decision-making? Because I think that's where the true interesting ideas that you express in the book are, how this radical uncertainty should be applied to how we make decisions moving forward. I want people to apply radical uncertainty to their own temperaments. So look, we all have our views. I'm not trying to tell people they shouldn't have views. I have my views. But if you look at most of your views and you say, well, the chance that that one's right is 99%. I mean, something's wrong, right? All these smart people disagree with you. You're not right 99% of the time. Most of our views should be like, well, I hold this view. And that's probably right like 53%, 53 to 47, not 99 to 1. So I want to push people to seeing their own views in terms of like, 53 versus 47, or 56 versus 44, they would be more rational. They'd be a lot more tolerant. We would be much, much less polarized politically. That would be a big plus. So that people should be epistemically humble and focus on what they can agree upon and realize that other people out there, like on average, are as good as they are. I love that, epistemically humble. That's a great line. But it's hard to pull off, right? We all every day are like wanting to leap to 99% chance that we're right. I mean, I think uncertainty, that's another thing that I, I find myself thinking about a lot lately, especially because as a society, we crave certainty so much. I want to talk about compounding. This is like the fact that we have an innate aversion to ambiguity and this desire for more and more certainty. And the fact that we have all these people who are so certain about their outcomes and about everything that they're doing, it's like a breeding ground for charlatans and people that are looking to trick you with all these fake outcomes. <laughs> it's just like a tough thing to stomach. But, you know, I think you have this principle of the book that kind of, it's a good North Star in this context. And it's the principle of roughness, right? All outcomes should be roughly the same in importance. Can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> like I give an example. Say you're debating, like, who's better, Mozart or Beethoven or Beatles or Bob Dylan? And again, you may have your view, but you should recognize a lot of judgments. There's a big gray area. Like one smart person could think Mozart's better than Beethoven. Another smart person could think the opposite. And neither is wrong. So I'm trying to teach people there are room for these gray areas. 
And one implication of that concretely is we, we should focus politically on what we can agree upon. And the one thing we ought to be able to agree upon is this idea of leaving quality institutions and a high stock of savings and investment and good government for the succeeding generations. That's part of the pitch of the book. I think that's one of the big issues that we're seeing right now politically, right, is everyone thinks that whatever happens is the end of the world. No matter what the outcome is, it's not good enough for anybody. And what you're pointing out is that embracing radical uncertainty should, in fact, mean that you realize that it doesn't really matter what the outcome is, because we have to look towards the more distant future, because according to your thesis, really, is what we're trying to achieve, again, is sustainable economic growth, right? And so I think that that becomes a really hard thing because it's not right in front of us. Yes. And we also are tending to think no leader is good enough because you see all the blemishes, say, on social media. So people become cynical. That actually makes corruption more likely rather than less likely. And you have in many countries, not just the U.S., around the world, just extremely unpopular politicians, political middles or centers falling apart, Views splintering in not always healthy ways. Yeah. And so do you see any positive, <laughs> I know this is, this could be a very dicey question, but do you see anything that is very positive with the current administration where you're like, this might suit us well? Oh, I absolutely do. First, let me say at the beginning, I was not a supporter and I still am not a supporter and I don't expect to be a supporter come next election. But I feel uh, Trump actually has cut back on the amount of regulation of the economy. Not all of that has been good, but much of it has been good. And just through a kind of sheer outrageousness and disruption, he has woken a lot of people up to the fact that not everything is fine in the world. And I don't think that was really his intent, but possibly that will be his greatest contribution. But I think also on some issues, talking with North Korea, you know, I don't think they're ever going to get rid of their nuclear weapons, but Trump said we should talk with North Korea. It's Probably he was right. There's not going to be some magical, easy solution the way he claims, but I would give him credit for that. So there have been some actually quite good things from this administration, even though, again, there are too many things I find offensive. I'm just absolutely not willing to endorse it. Yeah, I think sometimes there's something to be said for naivete, right? And it sometimes has that adverse effect. You walk into something not understanding it quite well, and by that very nature, you're doing things that other people wouldn't do in the same situation because they just don't think it's possible. Or to the second point you made there, I think that's another huge thing that you hit on as a philosophical point in the book is we, we have to start valuing what right and wrong is. I'll let you speak to it. It's your book. You know, I think you refer to it as common sense morality and utilitarianism and use that kind of as the basis, but I'll, I'll, let, you, I'll let you talk about it. You know, especially in academia, there's a moral philosophy often of, of relativism that either no one can say what's right or wrong or everyone has a different vantage point and there's not like any correct answer to matters of value. And in my book, Stubborn Attachments, I argue against moral relativism. I mean, there is a right answer. We can find it. Like over a long enough period of time, it will be better. Not literally for everyone, but for almost everyone. And what, what I call common sense morality, which is maybe like just what your parents or grandparents would tell you are the right things to do. Like, you know, work hard, save money, you know, don't lie, be conscientious, do the right thing. That's good advice, basically, in most cases. And I try to stick up for common sense morality. And I say more people following common sense morality will help us get to this goal of long-run value maximization. 
and that this is objectively right to do. On the contrary, there's utilitarianism, right? Which is you're basically doing things always do what makes sense. It's kind of a blend of both, no? You know, usually I like utilitarianism, but I'm not a pure utilitarian. I think there are some things we shouldn't do, even if they create more happiness than pain. So if you had like some audience of alien beings who would derive great pleasure from watching an innocent baby be tortured, you know, do you weigh off their pleasure against the pain of the baby? I would say, no, it's simply wrong to torture the baby. We're not going to do that. So the title of the book, Stubborn Attachments, it means I think the two stubborn attachments should be first, some idea of human rights, which we consider to be objectively correct. And second, that we really obsess over maximizing the rate of sustainable economic growth. They're the two things I want us to be stubbornly attached to. And so it's funny, when I first saw the title, I thought that you were referencing that we have stubborn attachments to the past. Well, we do too, right? And so the title's deliberately ambiguous. I like that. I like that. There's a trend in titles today. You like make them too much kind of for stupid people. And then you have this long subtitle with 16 words in it where you try to appeal to every category of book buyer. And I tried to create a title that would not be either of those. And so I call the book Stubborn Attachments, which is maybe intriguing, but not totally clear what the book is about. And then it's a vision for a society of free, prosperous, and responsible individuals, which is kind of the core of the content. Yeah, I, I, I like that. So when we end here, I would share it on air, but I, I want to share the title of my next book with you. I want to get some feedback on it before we wrap up. With that being said, I do have kind of a question that I'm, I feel like you might have been asked before. What advice would the Tyler Cowan today give the Tyler Cowan that's just starting his career? I don't know if this counts as advice. I think advice is usually counterproductive. I think the Tyler Cowan of today would ask the younger Tyler Cowan for advice. Like, what are the things I'm going to forget? Tell me them now (laughs) so I can remember them. But I think I would just say, look, it's going to work out fine for you. Many things in your life and uh, kind of the track you're on, I would encourage myself, I guess, to stay on it. Are there any long-term principles that you would say to yourself, hey, these are things that I would try to formulate my decisions around as I move through life? Well, the thing I've done You know, when people write books, I think they're often writing about themselves. Like I am myself actually pretty impatient. And the book is saying we should take a longer term time (laughs) perspective. So the way I do that is to like find joy in the intermediate steps. So if it takes two years to write a book, work on enjoying writing. It's very hard to talk yourself into simply thinking, you know, the distant future matters as much as the present. But if you can enjoy investing your short-term and long-term instincts then work together. And I would advise a lot of people, including my earlier self, to look for ways when you're impatient of still enjoying the short-run things that are good for you in the long-term. I feel like that could be tricky at times. So I told my brother, I said, one time we were having a conversation, I said, I I heard Tyler Cowen on on a podcast the other day, and I think I finally figured out the one thing that I have in common with him. And he was like, only one. Well, no, no. I think, I think, I have to, honestly, I think from an ideological standpoint, I think there, there's probably a lot of similarities. But from every other standpoint, maybe just one. So, you know, I heard you say, when I start writing a book, I just start writing it and I let the writing figure it out, and then I kind of go back and I change things, and that's kind of how I write as well. Do you still write that way, or did I misinterpret what what you were saying? No, no, that's exactly right. I still write that way, and it's because I'm impatient. I want to get to writing. And if I have to sit around with outlines for months, somehow I won't be as productive. 
So I probably waste a lot, like writing things I'll end up cutting or doing parts of drafts that are bad. But I like having momentum on my side. And if you just write something every day, you know, it will pile up and you'll have a lot. And if you have to rewrite it a bit, edit it, I mean, you'll still have something. So I'm a big advocate of anyone who's a writer, write every single day. Yeah, there we go. We have two things in common. I, I write, I try to write every single day. Not try, no. My advice is not to try to write <laughs> every day. My advice is to write every single day. <laughs> hey, 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 you gave the advice to write every day. I said I try to write every day. <laughs> See, there we go. Maybe we don't have it in common. This has been great. So I know that you're tight on time today. So I'm going to ask you four final questions. But before I, sure. before I do... Obviously, I want to give you give you a chance. Do you have a final ask of the audience? Best place to to connect with you and you know all, all that good stuff. I'm on Twitter at at Tyler Cowen. That's C O W E N. I'm happy for people to email me. You can Google my name, Tyler Cowen. Email my email is online. It's on my blog, Marginal Revolution, where I've blogged every day for 15 years, which means I've written every day. I also write for Bloomberg twice a week. And I have a podcast series called Conversations with Tyler. The very last episode was with Paul Krugman and coming out next is Eric Schmidt of Google. So that would be a start, but that's of course plenty. See how efficient that was? That's what I'm talking about. See, remember I started the conversation? That's super efficient. Precise, you said, yeah. Precision. Oh, wow. See, you have a good memory too. So here's the four final questions. You ready? Ready. What's one piece of advice you wish that you'd never hear somebody give again? You know, I think advice in general is overrated. Most people don't take it. When advice is exchanged, it's part of some generalized anxiety alleviation mechanism. So I would like people to deconstruct the advice, the giver, the receiver, and ask, in which ways has my anxiety needed alleviating? And to do that directly and to save advice for very specific things. Like if someone gives you directions to a restaurant, right? That's a kind of advice. That's great. So I think advice is overrated and think in terms of communicating with people that doesn't involve so much advice and figure out what you're saying is anxiety alleviation instead of real advice at all. That's enlightening. And, you know, it's funny. My qualm sometimes with advice is that going back to the whole certainty thing is that everyone is so certain about what they're saying that, you know, I have this philosophy that we'll be talking about a little bit in my next book, which is, you, you know, anytime you're faced with too much certainty, you challenge it. And you, yes. you challenge it, you challenge the certainty because one or two things happen. Either they can't articulate the downside of their advice and you don't want anybody who can't articulate the downside of their advice because every, there's always downside to their advice or they haven't thought about it. And if they haven't thought about it, that's just as bad because that means they're not considering it at all. So you always challenge too much certainty. So your thoughts there go hand in hand with that. I love that. And often parents and even managers, they give advice just to feel they've done everything possible, but not actually to have an impact. So they don't feel bad themselves. If you want to influence people, like introduce them to new others, it's way more effective than advice. Yeah, I'm, I'm a recovering advice giver. It's hard, you know, it's hard. People, people, yes. Because people come to you and they ask for it. And then when they ask you for advice, you, you almost feel an obligation to give it. And then it's like, wait a minute, should I even be giving advice on this? Because I don't even have this figured out myself. <laughs> it's almost like the reverse halo effect. Yeah. Okay, next question. So what's one quote or motto you live your life by? Be comfortable with messiness. You know, I present that in my TED Talk. Don't make everything into a nice, neat bundle. Don't think your life is a story or a narrative. Uh, realize a lot of things don't make sense. And nonetheless, go forward. Love it. What's one book that's impacted the way you think? 
reading Plato's dialogues when I was like 13, 14, the idea that philosophy is a conversation, that it's discourse, that it's back and forth, that at the end of the dialogues, you're usually not sure who really was right and who was wrong. That had a massive impact on me, and it still does. Has that helped at all with disagreement, with you being able to deal with disagreements? Because I feel like anytime you have any kind of philosophical conversation or any conversation, for that matter, there's always disagreements that arise. I hope it's helped, but I'm not sure I'm the one to judge it. Because I see like all these other arrogant people who think they're great at disagreeing, and maybe they're not. So I do have one more question, but I, but I, I feel yeah. like I need to ask you this. What's a way that helps you disagree with people? Uh, cultivating detachment. And writing the blog for 15 years, we have open comments. Numerous people insult me every day. They think they're getting under my skin. They're actually doing me a huge favor. I would encourage them to continue because it means I'm actually very open to being criticized. And after what I read in my own comment section, a lot of stuff just doesn't bother me. And I'm able to learn from the critics who have useful things to say. Yeah, and it's almost like they're forcing you to look at it from another angle. That's right. And then the last question, what's the one thing that you want to tell the world? It's not what it seems. Well, most things aren't what they seem. But anyone who thinks they can tell you like how it all really is, I would just say, you know, be suspicious, but that also means be suspicious of yourself and try to cultivate this diversity of sources of like information, instruction, and also inspiration. So create an environment around you that specializes in different things. Is that what you're saying? That is truly diverse. And it doesn't, I don't mean ethnic diversity, but certainly that's included, you know, gender diversity, of course, but just true intellectual and also like spiritual and emotional diversity around yourself and try to draw from that. Yes. I don't think I could have picked a better way to end it. This is a podcast to inspire open-mindedness. And if that isn't a, a piece of non-advice that we should follow, then <laughs> I don't know what is. So Tyler Cowan, thank you so much for coming on your book, Stubborn Attachments, A Vision for Society of Free, Prosperous, and Responsible Individuals, was a really, really enlightening read. I hope everybody goes out and, and grabs a copy because, as I told you before we started this, it might have been a tougher sell, but maybe it should have been called Cowanism. And thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it, and let's stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much.